What's going on, everybody? This is another episode of Adventures in DevOps. I'm Will Button. Joining me in the studio today, we have Jillian Rowe. Hello. And Jonathan Hall. Hi, everybody. I'm glad I made it. I thought I wouldn't be here today. Well, we're happy to have you. Thank you. Why would you think you weren't going to be here? Yeah, that's a great question. Why didn't I think I'd be here today? So, yeah, I I had a surprise turn of events in the last week, week and a half, maybe, uh, but really the last week, that ended with me going to the airport this morning in Amsterdam, where there's a union strike going on. So the the lines are long <laughs> and flights are delayed. So yeah, I was on a flight to Barcelona and the flight was delayed. I thought I wouldn't actually be on earth, literally, at the time we were recording. Turns out I got to the, the hotel about 20 minutes before recording. So that's why I thought I wouldn't be here. Does that answer your question fully, Will? I think it starts to answer it. Why on earth would you be going to Barcelona? <laughs> oh, that's a good question. Yeah, so, so about... I mean, aside from like all the obvious reasons to go to Barcelona. Yeah, I mean, who doesn't want sun and good food and, and some nice tourism stuff and whatnot? So I was just minding my own business the other day when I got a message on LinkedIn from someone who said, hey, I found you on Stack Overflow and we're looking for a senior Go developer. Would you be interested in a chat? And I thought to myself, not really, but hey, why not? Chats never hurt. <laughs> what the hell? So we scheduled a chat. And I think that that first chat happened last Monday. And it turned into a, a job offer, actually, uh, which was surprising. And I have accepted a job now with a company called Hubuk, H-U-B-U-C. I am their new, or will be their new VP of engineering. And I'm coming on to... Thank you. Did you have thank that you ready, Will? I'd like to thank my, I did. my family I did. and my dog. <laughs> and... I like that. <laughs> the baby, who I desperately want to have on the show again. Oh, yeah, we'll have him on one day. Speaking of babies, sidetrack. Have I told you we're expecting another one? <gasps> no! Whoa. When? When's the baby? Yeah. Uh, so November 3rd is the due date. Oh, yay! Thank you, everybody. Thank you, thank you. I have to thank my wife. She did all the hard work. Did all the hard work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so many jokes there that I'm just going to let go. Because <laughs> this is a family-friendly show. <laughs> hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately, I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com slash podcast. And you can actually hear a little bit more about my story about why I'm doing what I'm doing with top end devs, why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to top end devs. But what I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv. And I renamed it to top end devs because I want to give you the resources that are going to help you to build the career that you want right? So whether you want to be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I I want to give you the resources that are going to help you do that. We're going to have career and leadership resources in there, and we're going to be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, That's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com.
Com. Well, oh, cool. Anyway. So you've got yeah. a new job, and that's a great segue into today's topic on um, the how you get jobs, like traditional routes, non-traditional routes, what the interview process looks like. And uh, if we have time, I would like to dig into how you're going to approach this new job, because when you start, especially at a, a role like VP of engineering, there's obviously a lot of things that need to be addressed, probably some things that you would like to address. And so how do you identify, sort, and prioritize those? Yeah, great. So let's start with the the job, like the initial conversation. You said you weren't even looking for a job. Someone hit you up on LinkedIn because of your Stack Overflow profile. Yes, yes. And just real quick, what was kind of the time frame, like from when they first approached you to... Maybe you started discussing an actual position to accepting it, it to being in part less of than life. two weeks from initial contact till today. I think the wow. first contact, let me just look, but I think the first contact was on a Thursday or Friday. I think less than a month is and fine for that. We kind of had the first chat the following Monday. I, I think I got the email. So yeah, I was, I was heading to, uh, it was about two weeks. I was heading to do a workshop, an intro to DevOps workshop for Scrum Masters workshop for a, a former colleague of mine in his class he was teaching when I got the email. So I wasn't able to, res- to, to, I wasn't able to have the call with him. So I said, schedule, let's schedule a call for Monday. So that was on a Thursday. I got that contact. The workshop was Friday. Monday, we had the first call. We had a second call, I think the next day, so Tuesday. And then I think Thursday, scheduled calls with four other engineers at the company. And Monday this week, that was last week, the Monday this week, offer letter and negotiations. So, yeah, cool. Two weeks. So yeah, I think it was two weeks ago tomorrow that I got the first uh, first contact. Nice. And just to clarify, you did negotiate your salary? Yes. Please, yes. please tell us that you did. Good. Yes. I did. Good. Uh, that, that actually well, comes mostly up quite I frequently, first. especially... I, I wanted peanuts. Yeah. Chocolate covered peanuts yeah. was, I mean, was that's really a deal breaker. So, yeah. I, I always advocate everyone negotiate, even if the initial offer is more than you were expecting. Always ask for more, not to be like greedy or anything, but just because no one ever comes out with their best offer first, unless you're Elon Musk buying Twitter. So always ask and see what else is out there. And, and I think that's a great point. If, if the salary is where you want it to be and you're happy, then ask for other things, you know, like you can ask for a new laptop or a specific keyboard or one of the flexible things I recommend schedule. is that's my favorite. Yeah, flexible schedule. I also recommend for people who are interested in advancing their career, ask for a, like a monthly one on one with the CEO or the CTO just so you can learn what the business is like from that perspective and, and start idea. building those connections. Yeah, to be fair, the, things too, the, the entire situation this time was not typical. So I, I can't point to this example as what you ought to do. In fact, even the negotiation aspect was atypical. Like they didn't give you an offer and we negotiated back and forth. Um, what, what really happened was, and, and I think this happened, I think this was possible because they approached me and because I already have a bit of a presence and they, they know about my my blog and my YouTube channels, my, my podcast, this podcast. So, you know, they, they already had a certain expectation about what I would cost. And so it wasn't really a traditional salary negotiation, which of course will not apply to most people listening. You are going right. to, you're going to get a letter that says XYZ number, and you're going to ask for 5% more or 10% more, and you're going to go back and forth. And definitely you should do that. Yeah, cool. So I think the key takeaways there are <laughs> the effort you've put in on Stack Overflow and your your blog and the various podcasts that you're on 
all of that gave you credibility that not only brought you exposure, but during the interview process, would you say that that changed the course of the interview because you went in with a, a reputation ahead of time? Definitely. And, and well, certainly it changed my approach to the interview. In some ways, I was driving this interview process more than they were. And it, so, it, like I said, it, from the beginning, it wasn't a traditional interview process. I wasn't approached by a recruiter and then said, hey, you'd be a great fit. Would you like to meet my client? The CEO reached out to me directly. So my first conversation with, with the CEO, I suggested, based on that first conversation, that we have another conversation. to, And that was a short conversation, 30 minutes, I think. So I suggested a, a follow-up with his co-founder and or anyone else he wanted to involve to ask some more specific questions. And then from there, I suggested I meet more of the engineers. And I, I based on the team structure he gave me, I said, I'd like to meet the heads of these teams and, and you know, because they're the people that most matter for the problems you want to solve. So I, in a lot of ways, I drove the interview process. So in that sense, it was more like vetting a client than it was a traditional job interview. But I think that's okay because the the end result is the same. The question that I'm trying to answer and that they're trying to answer is, are we a good fit and can I help them? Uh, and is it a good mutual match? So I, I don't think there was a problem with that. It was non-traditional, but that was maybe possible because they're a small company. If this was Google, it, it would not have worked like that. But because they're a small right. startup, you know, they don't have rigid rules and neither do I. So we were able just to kind of kind of work this out and it, and it came together beautifully. Yeah, I do just want to say, I think the best way to uh, find a job is when you don't need a job and they come to you. Yeah. Or if like you already know people, I don't think I've ever once gotten a job through a recruiter. I don't think I've ever even had anything close, like even like anything that I'm remotely even qualified to do or have done before, like kind of opportunities come my way through a recruiter. So uh, yeah, that's great. Yeah, I think I think I've gotten a couple jobs from recruiters, but by and large, I think one of the key key things we're talking about here is the best jobs come from either people you know who work there or from taking the time and effort to market and promote yourself on various platforms that are used by people that you're trying to attract, whether that's Twitter or Stack Overflow or podcast or whatever. I've gotten a couple of other small consulting gigs through Stack Overflow as well, which was never my intention with Stack Overflow. It was never, I never saw it as a publicity platform, but it works very well for that, especially if you focus, I focus on the Go, the Golang uh, tag. So people, I, I frequently, uh, like three times in the last month, I've had people say, oh, I found an answer of yours. People I'm, I know either on Slack or at a physical meetup say, I found your answer on Stack Overflow. Thank you. <laughs> So that's awesome. If you like answering Stack Overflow questions, focus on a specific area. Don't don't just like shotgun everywhere. But if you focus on a specific niche that you're interested in, maybe that's Kubernetes or maybe it's uh, TypeScript or whatever you're focused on, you could become, you won't maybe be the expert, but you can definitely build a name for yourself there. And then you do have a personal profile in Stack Overflow. You can link it to your to your CV, your your resume, or to your website or your blog or whatever if you want to, and use that as a way. When people are looking for expertise, I can tell you from experience, it's happened several times. They look for people who answer questions on Stack Overflow and they'll reach out. Yeah. Do you have dedicated time? Do you have dedicated no. time that you dedicate to Stack Overflow, like on Wednesdays at ten a.m. No, most these days I don't do a lot of answering even. I still do curation. So I go in and I edit up people's posts or if it's a duplicate, I maybe vote to close as a duplicate to the original. But most of my my activity these days is just in between times. I'm waiting for CI to run somewhere or I have 10 minutes till my next meeting and it's not worth starting a new project. So I, I hop on Stack Overflow for a few minutes here and there. In the past, there have been times when I spent a lot more time 
Although you honestly, it was usually when I was at a job that was kind of boring. So I you know, <laughs> had extra time during the day to work. So I've never I've never blocked out time for Stack Overflow. Maybe that's a good gotcha. approach for some people, but I've never done it. That sounds good, though, because it is it does seem like uh, kind of a thing you hop on there because the, the questions sort of by definition on Stack Overflow are supposed to be very concise and isolated and really, you know, like preferably a couple lines of code. Right. They don't they don't tend to like things that are too out of scope. You will get the like this is, you know, this question is too broad tag or comment or whatever it is that they do on Stack Overflow. Of course, I just want to speak to anybody who doesn't like Stack Overflow or that's not their thing. There are a thousand other ways to contribute. You can use Quora. You can go on a Slack group, whatever. You know, there's you can write blogs, LinkedIn, Twitter, TikTok, whatever. Uh, Just, you know, Mm -hmm. you can contribute to the community in a thousand different ways that that can earn attention. It doesn't have to be Stack Overflow. Yeah, I think probably a blog is, well, I mean, Stack Overflow is easy too because you just sign up for the site. There are plenty of places where you can sign up for the site. And I was really amazed. Like I started a blog and I wasn't like doing anything to promote it. I wasn't like running ads or, you know, anything. I would just post it to my kind of share it with people if they asked me a question like, oh, hey, I wrote a blog post about this. Um, If they asked me the question, by the way, I didn't just farm it out. And then like maybe I would post it on my social media. But and on social media, I have like a grand total of like 10 followers or something. It's not like (laughs) uh, especially well known. But like I started getting a pretty significant uptick in job offers and people talking to me within like six months of doing that. So if people are listening and thinking like, oh, maybe a podcast or a YouTube channel is a bit much. Yeah, Stack Overflow, a blog, maybe write a question or maybe answer a question on Stack Overflow, write a blog post about it, and then you can link to your blog post, like things like that. Mm-hmm. I think that's great advice. I, yeah, I think, the, think, oh, go ahead, Will, you go first. I was just going to add to that. Pick the medium that you're most comfortable with you know if you're not comfortable being on camera or doing video youtube's a bad choice or tiktok would be a bad choice so because mm-hmm. I've, I've stumbled down that head first multiple times because apparently i'm a slow learner if there's a medium you're not comfortable with don't use that medium you don't have to be on all the different platforms right i think well, blogging look, I is a great place to <laughs> I think blogging I want to be is a great place. Being an Instagram influencer. <laughs> I think blogging is a great place to start. It's low effort. You don't have to blog every day or every week. For the, for for years, I had a blog that I would just blog whenever I felt like it, and that even that alone is really valuable when you're looking for work. And I, and I can say this with confidence because I've seen it happen. Write a next time you're you're stuck on something. Maybe next time you ask a question on Stack Overflow. Once you get the answer, write a blog post about it. Write it to yourself. You don't have to. Ha- you don't have to worry about who's the audience. Don't worry if your grammar is correct. Don't worry if your English is correct. Just write a blog post. And the reason is because if you have three, even just three or four blog posts over the last six years, put it at the top of your CV, and that next hiring manager is going to look at that blog and they're going to see that you are. Uh, and you're learning things. And, and they don't necessarily care if you have a post every month. They just want to see that that you've made an effort to learn something and describe the learning process. That's what so many people are looking for. That's what I'm looking when I'm hiring. That's what, I lo- what I'm looking for. So, you know, that, that goes a long way. I've had hiring managers tell me that, that they appreciate my blog. They've read my blog. It looks great. The same with GitHub. If, if you have a public GitHub profile uh, or GitLab or Bitbucket, whichever one you use, um, put that on your CV. It doesn't need to be big and fancy and sexy. It just whatever honest work you're doing that, that that's allowed to be shared publicly, put it on GitHub. Hiring managers love to see those examples. Very cool. Oh, sure. And that is very true. I mean, even like 
like a lot of times I'll kind of think of it as I'm just writing notes to myself because I have the memory of a goldfish and like, you know, like I, I have absolutely Googled my own blog post before to try to find out <laughs> what it was that I was doing. So if you're worried about it, just, you know, it's just notes to yourself that you just happen to be putting on the internet where there are a million other things on the internet and nobody will ever exactly. know if you're feeling that exactly. kind of self-conscious about it. My first blog had a mix of travel blog stuff, recipes I liked and occasional tech stuff. Don't don't worry, you know, that's fine. Uh, if unless you're trying to become a, a professional conference speaker about whatever tech topic, don't worry. Mix and match. Nobody cares that you have recipes and cat pictures along with your here's how I learned to fix this problem in TypeScript post. That that's fine. Absolutely. So when you uh what is your plan of attack? You're going to go into this job and what's, you know, you've already kind of detailed a little bit, which I think is an interesting process. You started talking to people and then that sort of led into this kind of network effect as well. I need to go talk to these other people and to these other people. So what's next? Are you going to keep talking to people, get more contacts? Do you like to dive right in and get started? What do you what do you typically do when you start a new job or a new, new so, job, new gig, new project? Yeah, typically what I do is different than what I'm probably going to do this time. And that's because I, I did a lot of more due diligence this time than I often do. Part of that's because I was burned at previous companies. Um, and I, and I can look at one specific example, a company I worked at a few years ago, uh, where I was doing similar type of work to what I think I'll be doing here. So one of the one of the key questions I asked the CEO uh, on our last conversation before I uh, was willing to accept the offer was, what does the product roadmap look like? And what's your growth plan in the next 12 months? And the reason I wanted to know these things was because a lot of, especially startups, in my experience, have this conflict of interest that they want to grow as rapidly as possible. They want to release 16,000 new features and they want to pay down technical debt all at the same time. <laughs> and the problems they were talking to me about were very specifically technical debt related problems. Things like getting continuous uh, deployment in place, solving some performance issues on some of their core services. And, you know, th there's a long list. There's actually a, a multiple page document that they have from a, a previous consulting engagement that, that identified some of the key technical problems. So they, they have a pretty clear list of technical problems to solve. And I wanted to make sure I wasn't going to come in and be trying to solve these problems all, all at the same time, hiring 15 new developers and trying to train them and get them up to speed. And at the same time, we're trying to push out new features that we've already promised to customers next quarter and stuff like that. So, you know, I, I asked that early on and uh, the answer was, uh, we don't really have a roadmap right now because we're focused on solving these problems and we're, we don't have a growth plan per se. Uh, we're, we're, we're happy to grow if we need to, but that's not our goal. So that, that put a lot of, uh, that, uh, that put me at ease going in here. I, I, I felt like I'm, I can focus on the problems at hand appropriately without having to try to balance these three different competing uh, agendas at the same time. So, I mean, the, the the broad answer to the question without getting into technical details is we're going to be paying down technical debt uh, for the first probably six months or so. That sounds like a trap. Are you sure you weren't being pranked? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, like, like Jillian said, you know, it's great to look for a job when you don't need one. If, if that turns out to be the case, I can just uh, say thanks for the trip to Barcelona, guys. <laughs> right. It's a real buy. I worked for a company once on my first day. They gave me the, you know, gave me the new laptop and the, my new manager gave me the tour of everything. And at the end of the day, he said the thing that cracked me up the most. He's like, okay, so now you have all the dirty secrets and uh, I hope to see you tomorrow. But if not, enjoy your new laptop. <laughs> <laughs> 
like people with like realistic standards, you know, like, listen, I know that this is what it is. Nice. Yeah, so you know, did, uh, did you see him the next day or did you just take that laptop and run? Well, let's see. How when long? What's the statute of limitation? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I did show up the next day. <laughs> so I'm here with JD from Raygun. JD, why did you start Raygun? You know, I, I started Raygun. It was actually our 11th product that we built. So, you know, if you're a fellow software engineer thinking you want to build something and build a business, this was the 11th try, right? And we built it because way back when I was writing more code for customers, I used to instrument my code to send an email to myself when something went wrong. And it would let me kind of get in front of the issue before the customer complained. And so we built a, a whole product called Raygun for crash reporting initially. Uh, it expanded out into other areas, but it was really just building a full solution to what I'd been doing years earlier to try and build better software. I love that. Just scratching your own itch. It makes a ton of sense. And and I do that too with some of the stuff that I'm doing, either with podcasting or programming. Yeah, absolutely. The The most awkward thing was when we actually instrumented some of those prior 11 products. And that's when we realized that about 1% of users will ever actually report an issue. And you go, oh, we might have been a lot more successful earlier if we'd known that. <laughs> so that's kind of the whole value prop of Raygun. Yep, absolutely. And it, it makes sense just to put it in there. So folks, if you're looking to try something like this that will tell you what your problems are, go check out raygun.com and get a free trial. You know, I do have to say that's one of my favorite thing about doing like uh, the contracting gigs is like if things get weird or they do not work out, I, I press exit very very quickly and it's not nearly as stressful as leaving a job i'm just like okay this isn't working out like goodbye now and then i leave and yeah it's much harder to do that when you have a job but i'm not happy you know it sounds cool i was just having this conversation earlier today on slack the older i get the more i see a job as a financial transaction and less of a like social club i need to belong there sort of thing you know early on you know and i, I think this is true for a lot of people a, a job kind of becomes your second family for, for a lot of people and, and, and maybe that's okay i'm not i'm not i don't want to judge you if you feel that that's how your job works it's just not how i work anymore it used to be but now i've partly as i've gotten older uh, as i've grown my own family um i've learned to find that social meaning in other places. And my my job is more of a financial transaction. Of course, that doesn't mean that I, I don't want to do good work. You know, I, I think I think those that, that's the, the pushback I get often is, oh, if it's just a financial transaction, you're gonna do the bare minimum to get by. I don't see it that way at all. I want I, I want to be proud of the work I do, regardless of how much you're paying me. That's, you know, that's, it's not about <laughs> cutting corners or whatever. But back to the, the point, you know, is it a job or is it uh, client work? The distinction blurs in my mind the older I get and the longer I work in this industry. Yeah, and tech, it's often so like project focused anyways. So I think um, that's always kind of been a mental, uh, I don't know, model that I've had that I think has given me a bit of an advantage in that like everything is just a project. I don't really ever expect for any job to last. Like it could be, you know, things could be going great. I could be everybody's getting along. And then, uh, you know, the next funding cycle, there's no more funding or the project just stops for some reason or they didn't get results. That happens a lot, too, in science. Uh, you know, you have something promising. They don't get results. It's time for everybody to get a new job. So I don't I don't know. Yeah. I don't think I've ever had this sort of attachment to my jobs the way that I know other people have. Yeah, I think that's good life advice in general. Like keep your kind of um, I don't know. I was. I suppose for me, it's like the intellectual life. Like I like solving problems and fixing things. But like my social life and family and things, they are very, very separate. Very separate. And that's good. You know, I think it's good advice. Anytime you start a new job, it's good to remember that 
you probably won't be there forever. I mean, realistically, this this might sound dire, but there's only two ways people leave jobs. <laughs> they quit or they die. You know, that that's it. <laughs> and you know, maybe this will be your job for life. Escorted off the property. Okay, okay. I, I consider that a subset of quitting, but you know, I guess it's an involuntary quitting. But right. the, the, the point is, <laughs> the point is, most of the time, especially these days, you know, back maybe 150, 100 years ago, you maybe had one job for life or if you were lucky. But these days, we don't look at it that way. So just assume that you're going to be leaving your job. And, and if you're hiring people, assume that whoever you hire is going to be leaving. And don't be upset when that when that relationship ends, because it's going to end. It's not like you're, I mean, we, we, we hope that when we marry somebody, it's for life. Even that's not often true. But this, we don't even hope that with a job. So why do we get upset when somebody's looking for new work or they 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 resign you know that it, it, it's silly so i think if we all, if both parties the hiring and the the employee go into it with the expectation this is a temporary thing for a few years or or however long and then we'll leave on good terms it, it's so much healthier for everybody involved yeah i think that's a, a bit of a generational thing you know from my age i was raised with that whole go to school work hard get a job and stay at that job until you get your pension at 65, you know, and join the military and my family, it's joined the military, which is, which is a bit of a life or death uh, commitment. Yeah. Well, that's, that's where I went because I had limited options. So military accepts all, but, but I, I think that was, that was like the de facto life advice when I was growing up. And now that I'm older, I'm looking back on it and I'm like, wait a minute. Throughout like the four million years of evolution, that was only true for one generation. Why are we so hung up on this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think uh, my I, mom's still really not used to it. Like sometimes she'll ask me, and I'll, I'll I'll say whatever, and she's like, "What? Didn't, like, didn't you just switch jobs?" And I'm like, "Well, no. Now, now I'm a contractor, so that's kind of like in the definition." And she just, I don't know, she's she's just not about it. <laughs> so you've got some uh, challenges, some tech debt to pay down. How are you gonna? Uh, identify, prioritize, and tackle this. Can you share your thoughts on that? Yeah, so there's. I already have a pretty strong idea of one specific area that, that probably is the highest priority, although I'll, I'll find out for sure. They're using a database that uh, is fairly slow, and they've decided to migrate to Postgres. They're using uh, QLDB, Amazon's quantum ledger database, which is new to me, but apparently it's it's good for read-heavy traffic, but they're doing some write, heavy writes uh, to it. So they're, they're thinking of switching to Postgres. And so that's going to be the first thing for me to do is to evaluate whether that actually makes sense or if there's some sort of stopgap measure we can do. Some What's the quickest way to improve the performance of the database? Because it's making some of the API calls really slow and customers are complaining. So that that's a gotcha. pretty, I, I think that's a pretty clear uh, first step, although that's a small step. That's maybe not the biggest problem, but maybe the most uh, urgent. Beyond that, everybody's describing their core service as a distributed monolith, which uh, doesn't make anybody <laughs> very happy. <laughs> So I need to evaluate that. What are what are the realistic options uh, to improve that situation? Deployment is a manual process right now. It's apparently not very time consuming, but it's still manual. So that it's so in practice, deployments are happening once a week, I guess. So yeah. we need to determine, you know, how are we going to automate that? And of course, that's complicated by the, the distributed monolith problem. So you know, th- there's several things on the table. And of course, I mentioned the document that the previous consultants provided it gave ser- a couple dozen problems, old versions of TLS, uh, places where I don't remember what they all were, but kind of nitty gritty technical things that need to be fixed. Some of them kind of mm-hmm. high priority, some of them much lower priority. So you know, there's kind of a, a bucket list of things to go through to, to clean up. 
Uh, one of the problems I mentioned is, you know, a lot of uh, error messages in Sentry that that kind of get ignored just because probably because there's too many of them. So we need to figure out what's the situation there and which ones are actually important, which ones can we ignore for the for the while. Uh, so you know, there's, there's a, a large spectrum of, of things to be done. None of them are particularly uh, like in isolation. I, I don't think are, any, are particularly difficult. They're all the same sorts of things. I think everybody in this industry comes across. And then, of, of course, and I, and I said this during the, the interview process, the, the hard part isn't even the technical stuff. The hard part is the cultural part. Because if you have developers who are or engineers who are accustomed to a certain way of working, convincing them that changing to a different way of working is actually better for them can be hard. And and will the switch be permanent? Or, you know, suppose I were to switch them over to a new way of working and then I were to, to get hit by the proverbial bus, would they keep working that way or would they go back to the old ways? You know, so, so those are the really hard problems. I mean, I, I could, I could come in and pound out a bunch of rules. Here's the way we're going to do deployments and we're no longer doing distributed monoliths or whatever. That's, that's, that's really the easy part. The hard part is, is getting everybody on board with these new changes and, and taking ownership of those changes and, and really feeling pride in the system that they're working on and they're helping to contribute to instead of just following a set of rules. That's great. I like that you bring about uh, the people aspect of it because I think so many times people just, you know, they make their charts and lucid charts and are like, all right, my work here is done. And I don't, I don't particularly agree with that way of working. And then that also yeah. kind of brought to mind another sort of aspect of all this that I've been thinking about that I've, I'll bet you've thought about more than I have, which is, do you make any kind of differentiation between something like technical debt and I suppose what we could call like mental or knowledge debt? And by that, I mean, you know, OK, you have a function, you have to get it faster. That's pretty technical. But like something like, OK, we have this manual deploy process. It's probably the case that there is only one person who knows how to do it. And all that context is stuck in their head or maybe like if it's me, like in some terrible make file somewhere. Or something like that. And to me, those are two kind of different problems that needed to be tackled in like different ways. And I'm just wondering kind of what are your thoughts on that? That latter description, that scenario, I would I would not have considered calling that technical debt per se, except maybe in the absolute broadest sense. You know, if I was just describing to somebody over a dinner party, we have a lot of technical debt, maybe I'd sort of lump it all in there. But yeah, in a in a real sense, I would I would consider that something else. I don't know what I call that. I mean, if there's one person who knows the process and only one person, of course, there, you know, there's a bottleneck. If you've read the Phoenix Project, I think his name was Brent. Who was that person? <laughs> uh, <laughs> you have a low bus factor, so to speak. Yeah, you know, there's different there's different ways to describe that problem. It's clearly a problem. And, there, and there's, of course, different ways to approach that. If the if just to, to maybe hammer that point home a little bit, if you have a really manual deployment process that is truly complex, I mean, uh, the, the ideal scenario is to automate it. And then you no longer have a single person as a bottleneck. Uh, everybody has access to the automation and they all have access to read the automation if they want to see how it works. But it's not always possible to get there quickly. So maybe the first step is to have the one person document that and then do a, rota- a, a, a deployment rotation. So every, every deployment is done by someone else. And that way you're A, going to share that knowledge. So you no longer have that single uh, point of failure. And B, each person is probably going to do it differently and they're going to be forced to rewrite that documentation until it's actually precise and, and clear to everybody. So you'll, you'll improve the, the knowledge sharing and you'll improve the process at the same time. And then over time, you can start to automate that. Hopefully, uh, you know, maybe each time someone deploys, you ask them to spend an hour automating one step and then piece by piece, the, the process becomes less and less manual. Yeah. I think there's the, some of the things I've encountered doing similar tasks in the past is you have to address for lack of a better term, like 
the psychological factor of that, you know, when the person who is the single point of failure, why is that? Is it because it's complex and difficult to explain? Or is it like some level of fear on their part where they don't have confidence and security in their role? And so they're kind of like hanging on to this little thing, thinking that that's their security blanket to remaining relevant in the company. And if that's the case, then you know, you have to address that, that, um, that issue with them and like find out what they need to feel comfortable and worthy and like a valued contributor in the company while trying to take that away from them. Cause if you just take that process away from them, you've taken away their security blanket and now they're likely to react because they're feeling, um, exposed and, and unprotected. Yeah. I mean, that, that problem that this, uh, of a single point of failure is, is, often very complicated uh, and there are many things that can lead to that of course that's it's natural in a small company you know whoever your first technical hire is maybe it's the founder or maybe it's the first technical hire or the, the longest surviving technical person kind of that becomes natural and then you know as but then as the company grows is when it really becomes a problem you know once you have 10 engineers but everybody's relying on that one brent guy to to do the deployments or to debug the difficult thing or whatever that's the really dangerous pattern and there are there are reinforcing patterns that are kind of human nature, which is, I think, why this happens so often. I mean, when when Brent can fix that problem faster than you can, why not ask Brent to do it? You know, it's, it's better for the customer, right. right, to get that problem solved faster. And if you're the yeah. boss, the non-technical boss, and you need to know how, how long is it going to take to do this thing, you're going to ask Brent because he's the one who knows. So, you know, we all sort of tend to naturally focus our attention to, to the expert. And, and so the solution is counterintuitive in many ways. Uh, of yes, we know that Brent is the best one to do this, but that's why we're not asking him, because we we need someone else to learn. And if they can't figure it out, they can ask Brent, but we're not going to go to Brent directly, or, or you know whatever the situation is. There's different ways to approach it. Yeah. And then you know, in, in the truly dysfunctional organizations, you end up with this sort of hero worship, and everybody looks to Brent as the as the rock star, and oh, he saved the day again, and whatever. And then you can get into some really negative patterns where where Brent's incompetence potentially leads to him looking like the hero. You know, the, the, the firefighters get the attention, not the fire preventers. And right. if Brent is always fighting fires, then he learns, and everybody learns, uh, that he's the hero, not the person who who didn't delete the database because they were thinking correctly. It's the person who restored the database who who gets the all the attention. So there, there can be some really dysfunctional dynamics at play. It could also just be an innocent human nature that we look to the guy who seems to be the expert. But whatever the case, however bad it is, the solution needs to be intentional and often involves doing counterintuitive things. Yeah. And and over communicated so that people understand why it's happening. Right. Yeah, and, and I right specify. Right go ahead. I was just going to say, uh, if a job description has the word rock star or ninja in it, do not, do not apply. Like, do right. not apply. That, that's my PSA for the night. That's I agree. Here, here. Unless you're actually performing on stage or doing martial arts, of course, then. Right. If you need an actual assassin, a ninja might be a good, a good candidate. Yeah. Or if it is a legitimate posting on Indeed.com for like Motley Crue, then it's, right. it's an actual rock star. In which case, it's just the job description. It's not a 
That's the actual title. Actual title. Yeah. 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 All right. Tech tech job descriptions with uh, Rockstar <laughs> Ninja. Because for a while that was in like all of them, and I was just like, I don't, I don't want to be a rock star. Let, let's add cowboy to, to that group five too. And hang out with my kids. Yeah, cowboy. That one gets me. I've always thought of cowboy coder as a negative, but I've actually seen it in a couple of job descriptions. Like, no, that's that's crazy. You don't want that either. No, no. Yeah, I think a lot of times uh, it is human psychology. Like from a psychological perspective, people very much overestimate what they can get done in a short period of time, but underestimate what they can get done in a year, which is why a lot of times people will try for the very, very quick solution, but not think, okay, it might take me, I don't know, an hour longer for another engineer to figure it out rather than I don't feel like we should keep harping on this poor Brett guy. I don't I don't know who he is, but let's pick somebody else. <laughs> I don't know, Cindy, uh, you know, so instead of going to Brett, let's go to Cindy. It'll take an hour longer, but over the long, like, but over the long haul, this will be better for the company and it will eventually reduce time because we're spreading out the knowledge to more people and not having, uh, you know, not having this kind of bottleneck or anything, which is, I forget the name of the effect, but it is in fact like a psychological effect. I think that's one of the key roles or key responsibilities of a VP of engineering role is to help communicate that message, not only to the engineering staff, but also in a reverse direction to the rest of the business to say, hey, you requested this. Our typical turnaround time has been a week. It's going to take a little longer this time. And here's why. Because I've seen, you know, it's it's very possible, especially in smaller companies, for the new person to come in to implement those and someone from the business side to go, no, no, I know Brent can do it in a week. And then they run around and they have a little private chat with Brent. Mm-hmm. And one of the dangers there, too, is maybe Brent did it in a week, but did he do it correctly? Did he do it in a way right. that's going <laughs> to yeah. make sense in a year? <laughs> yeah. Did he add yeah. What's the actual <laughs> definition of done? Yeah. <laughs> no, but I mean, that's so I, I've been in a job once where I was put in that position where it was just constant, like, get it out fast, get it out fast, get it out fast. You can only do that for so long before everything is a dumpster fire. And I knew that everything was a dumpster fire. And I was not happy with everything being a dumpster fire. Because I I do actually care about like doing, you know, a good job and having a good quality of work and, you know, wrapping up my projects with a nice neat bow before moving on to the next one. But uh, with that one, just there there was there was a lot of other issues too. But uh, yeah, so it's not it's not even always the engineers who like it. Sometimes there's, um, you know, like outside pressure as well, like get this done, get this done fast, you know, get it done now. And it's like, well, it can be done faster. It can be done well. Like, which, you know, which one do you want to pick here? Mm-hmm. And if they keep choosing fast, uh, I don't know. I think as as professionals, it is our responsibility not to give the clients those options. The clients, your boss, your product owner, whoever is serving the role as a client to the product you're building. I think it's our responsibility not to give them that option in most cases. There are there are exceptions. Um, I think it's easy to say that, but I mean, I, I was oh, I'm not saying young it's easy. had two young kids and easy. needed health insurance and food and well, stuff like that. So no, that's I, I kind get of it. my priority. I get it. Yeah, I get it. And there are times to cut corners. I, mean, I was having this conversation at a meetup uh, last week uh, where somebody was saying, you know, the one of the one of the presentations at the meetup was about testing uh, cucumbers specifically in Go. And afterwards, we were talking. Uh, one of the attendees was talking to the presenter, and I was nearby. We were this three way conversation, and uh, the the attendee asked, you know, when, when does it make sense to invest the time into, into learning to do test first development TDD or or cucumber type style testing? And, and, you know, because in his experience, as an he works at an agency and he was saying that uh, clients don't want to pay for tests. 
And, and uh, I understand that clients don't want to pay for tests. That's true. They want the, the final product. On the other hand, they also want the final product done correctly and quickly. And to my knowledge, the only way to do a product cr correctly and quickly is with tests. You know, that's just one example of, of the right way to do things. But, you know, tests pay for themselves very quickly. And, and, and once you become proficient in something like TDD, they, it pays for itself within 30 minutes, usually. You know, it's, it's not a month's long payout. It's a, it's a minutes or hours long payout. The, you know, the time that you save that you would be running tests manually. So, and that, that's why I say as professionals, I think it is our responsibility to do things the right way and not to give that choice to the client. There are, there are, there can be exceptions. I mean, think about when, when do you have an electrician come over? Do you want him to do things the right way or give you the option for the cheap, uh, fast way that's not the right way? There, there are times when you might want that choice. So whatever those times are, and apply that to your job as a professional software developer or engineer. Uh, and maybe there are times when it's appropriate to offer shortcuts. But generally speaking, I want my electrician to do a good job and to do things the right way and not cut corners. So why would I expect my engineer to cut corners if it's going to potentially bite me in the, in the rear end later on? Yeah, one of the analogies I use to address that, because it comes up pretty frequently, one of the analogies I use is, so let's say you go to the hospital and you need to have your appendix removed. You assume that the surgeon is going to sew up the the incision when they're done. And so if you tr uh, translate that to what we do and say, oh, I'm going to write code but not write tests, that's equivalent to you waking up from surgery with a big gaping hole in your stomach and the surgeon going, you said you wanted your appendix removed. You didn't say anything about closing up the incision. And I think, it, I think it's this, a similar analogy. A lot of times a customer in the business context doesn't know that they need to ask for tests or they don't understand what tests are, but it's part of the whole package that you're delivering them to them. You're delivering to them just like, you know, we're going to cut a hole in you. We're going to remove the appendix and then bonus, we're going to sew that hole back up. Right. <laughs> you would be pretty worried. But I mean, what about when, you know, when you tell them, right? So you, you, you tell them, okay, hey, listen, I don't think this is a good idea. It's going to cause this, this and this down the line. But for whatever reason, it's ultimately their decision. Like I don't tend to be working on my own projects that I am bankrolling. When I am, those ones are my decisions and I write all the tests. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, but most of the time I'm not, right? Like I'm working on other people's code, other people's projects, other, you know, things that other people have invested in, paid in, bankrolled. Uh, and it's not my decision. So what do you recommend? What do you guys recommend people do then? Or if, you guys ever been in that scenario? What did you do? So, I mean, I, I think there, there's a, play, a time and place for that. Uh, <laughs> as an analogy, uh, I may have even used this on the show a few months ago. We had a clogged toilet in our guest house uh, that we rent on Airbnb. So we had the plumber come over and he did a diagnostic and he said that you really need to rerun the sewer line because it's at a 90 degree angle and blah, 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 blah. I don't, that's probably 10,000 euros worth of work for him to do. Maybe more. I don't know. It's, it's a really major project for him to do it, quote, the right way. So, you know, I, I hired a plumber to come over and I expected to spend a hundred bucks on, on cleaning a drain. And he, and he turns around and gives me a 10,000 euro bill. That, that's, that's definitely something to talk about. So that's a situation where I definitely want him to come to me with the option. Say, Jonathan, look here, the right way is 10, 15,000 euros. The cheap way is 300 bucks every six months. Which way do you want to go? So that there's an appropriate, you know, that's appropriate. I, I don't, uh, on the other hand, when he does the 300, 300 euro version, I don't expect him to say, oh, you want me to reattach the toilet afterwards? You know, that. <laughs> so <laughs> there's a certain amount of professional professionalism I expect, regardless of what 
solution I choose. So, you know, if the client comes to you with a problem and you, and you have two or three ways you can solve it of varying degrees of quote correctness, I, I think it is appropriate to offer them that. But you shouldn't skimp on any three, any of those to the point that you're doing an unprofessional job, whatever that means in, in the context. So, you know, if, if I'm doing the cheap version with bash scripts instead of writing a proper solution with, I don't know what it would be, I still expect the bash script to be properly commented and, you know, to, to be stored in Git somewhere. I'm not going to just send them a zip file like, oh, I, I did the cheap version. So there's no version control and there's no comments. That, I guess that's kind of what I'm what I'm talking about. Here, here. Sounds good. <laughs> Well, cool. Anything else about Tanuja to talk about? I think I'm good. I've asked all my questions. Well, then, Alrighty then. I'm going to go eat some paella here in a minute and uh, learn about the technical debt I get to solve in the coming months. <laughs> nice. Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and in some cases, just taking their career to the next level. You know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate, intermediate going to advanced, whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance, I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships and how to build their careers and max out and, and just go to the next level. So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, go to topendevs.com coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching. Let's do some picks real quick, and then we'll get you out of here. Yeah, Who's got a pick food. ready? I have a re reverse Hi. pick. A reverse pick? Yeah. Let's hear it. I don't know if that even means anything, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try this and see what happens. So I want a service that I don't know if it exists. So I want somebody, one of our listeners, to send an email and tell me, that it exists. I use Drip for my email uh, automation. So uh, if you sign up for one of my free courses or something, it will send you one email per day for the duration of the course. And then it will uh, put you on my daily mailing list uh, where you can sign up at jhall.io slash daily if you want to, to sign up. I want to manage this completely as infrastructure as code. So I want a Drip or, or ConvertKit or what one of those types of email marketing automation services that I can con configure completely in a Git repository, probably using YAML files and email templates or something like that. If you know of something like that ex that exists, then you will answer my reverse pick and hopefully email me. You can find my email address at, on my website at jhall.io. I have some um, ideas for that. So if you use awesome. AWS SES, which I know because I've had to do stuff like this. So if you use the Amazon service, you can hook it up with automations that store to your database of choice, Postgres, DynamoDB. And then yeah, once you have that database, you can... What? I don't want to build a whole app. That, no, that, that's what people tell me. Use SES or use Mailgun, but I don't want to build an app. I but want the app to exist. I only want the configuration You want to have infrastructure as code and that then you don't want to have code, all right? That's not... We can't do that. No, I want code. <laughs> I want... I don't want to build an app. I want he code. wants code written by someone else. <laughs> so I, what I what I want is, is is something like Terraform for Drip, or something like the AWS CLI tool or the G Cloud CLI tool that lets me control Drip through the command line, which I could then put into a Bash script. JSON schema, but, you know, like, like JSON schema, identify. YAML. I don't care what the format is. I want it to store and get so I can version it, 
And if for some god awful reason drip goes offline, I have everything backed up and I can re- restore it somewhere. So yeah, I know that SES exists. I know Mailgun and, and SendGrid. I know about all these things and I've written code against those. I've written email sending code. But I don't want to have to go build my entire email automation app and manage user subscriptions and GDPR, blah, 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 blah. I don't want to do all that. I just want to yeah. put the configuration in and get tricky with what I was thinking. The rest of it still applies, though. You can you can do tag. I mean, like if you're just doing like users and tags, because when I've done this, it's something really simple. Like I literally have a users table and the, the users table is taken care of like by cognito and then tags and tags. You can actually you can do like uh, metadata in AWS cognito now. And I think you can in Auth0 too. And then you can set up automations for those. But I don't. So, so GDPR, if, if I, I can't. Know, Find a tool that does what I want. Maybe I'll invent, maybe I'll build one and maybe it'll be based on SES or, or Mailgun or something. But before I go doing this, I want to, I want to see if one exists. Fair enough. I too so, do not want to. I'm looking code. forward to it. That's my reverse pick. Send me an email at jonathan at jhall.io or find me on jhall.io uh, and let me know. And if you find the answer, I'll announce it here as an actual pick in the future, in a future episode. There you go, guys. Your way to stardom. Right <laughs> Also, please come on the show. We need other people to argue with. <laughs> We're getting tired of arguing with each other. <laughs> I know, only so much snark that can go around. <laughs> what have you got for picks, Jillian? All right, so I've got, I guess, two picks today. So I've got two tech picks. One is this GraphQL engine called Hisora, which uh, you can point it at like a, a Postgres database, and then it automatically gives you this nice GraphQL kind of schema on top of it without you having to do anything. And, you know, my favorite code is code that I do not write. So I really like that. And then one thing that I also realized that you can do with it is that you can add what are called remote schemas. So you can hook up into different APIs. And this is relevant for me because I have been really, really busy lately, which is all good things. But I'm getting to the point where I've deployed so many clusters and then, you know, clients email me back and are like, well, what do, you know, I need to update this cluster, this cluster. And I'm like, who are you and what cluster are we talking about here? That I'm thinking <laughs> I have reached the point where, uh, you know, like my IDE and doing like find and grep is not quite enough. And I'm thinking about building like a small internal tool, but I don't really want to have to write a lot of code for it. I like writing code, but I don't I don't like maintaining it. That's the problem with me. So anyways, I was looking at Hisora and then I was looking at this other um, tool called AppSmith, which I think is really cool. It's very much in line with this all of these cool like low code tools that are coming out, meaning there's not there's not no code. But um, so there is like some JavaScript and some binding and, you know, you you set up your data sources and things like that. But once you have the data sources set up and you have um, those in like well-defined APIs, meaning something like I'm using the GitHub API quite a lot. So if you can go and like look up the GitHub API, everything will like autocomplete for you. So you start typing, you're like, get this API, put it into a table and then like row by row. And you, you know, you open up your curly braces and write like current row dot. And then it auto-completes like the, the structure of whatever is the thing that you fetched from that API. So that is really cool. I'm hoping that's going to help me a lot because I, I, I really, I'm not kidding. I, like, I'm not even sure what day it is anymore some of the time. So that would be really, really good if I could get all that organized. And it does seem like that has been my main focus lately is deploying HPC clusters. So I kind of, I, I just want to get like a better handle on that and have things more organized. And then kind of in that realm, I have this app called Set App for my Mac. I think it's a subscription. It's like $4 a month, but it gives you just a ton of different apps and things that you can use. And one of those is this app called Workspaces, and you can set it up. Um, I set it up so that I have like a different configuration per project. 
So for each one of my clients, I tend to have like a configuration where it will open up their code in PyCharm, open up Slack if I need it, you know, like just open up a web browser if I have to log into their Okta or AWS or whatever. And so I have all that configured. And then the nice thing is that it shuts down everything first. So like it gets rid of all like previous client stuff, opens up new client stuff, which is really nice because now like I don't take calls where I'm like, oh no, this is some other client's code that I really shouldn't be showing you. And this, this is not good. This is not good at all. And then, you know, like try to very quickly shut it down and then hope that, you know, nobody ever says anything about it ever because we do not speak of such things. So anyways, I just, <laughs> I really like that app. It's been very helpful for me in terms of keeping organized and then that one. And then there's another one that I have called, I forget what it is. It's some kind of like Pomodoro timer though, where you do like, I don't know, you know, like 25 minutes on five minutes off, which is really good for me, especially because I work from home and I get like really, really sucked into problems. And then I find like, if nothing comes along to interrupt me, which nothing does lately, because my kids are back in school, like I will just sit at a desk for a very, very long time. And that is bad. That is that is very, very bad. This is like a pro tip from the panelists here. Do not sit at your desk all day. Get up, move around, stretch, get a yoga mat, like get a walking desk, do what you need to do. Don't sit at your desk all day. So that's that's been kind of good for me in terms of uh, it sets a little alarm and then I get up and I'll, I don't know, walk around, get some tea, get on my elliptical for a bit, do something. So that's it. Those are my picks. What was that app called? The the desktop manager, did you say setup? Setup is like the, the app of the apps. And then the other one is called, I think it's called Workspaces. Yeah. Workspaces. What is, what is the other one? It's not, is it Be Focused? I don't know. Workspaces is the one I like. You can also have an app that just, um, you can also set it to just like clean everything. So like I have one that's like just shut everything down. So on the weekends, I like to, you know, I don't want to have Slack open because then it could ping me and, you know, and then I get sucked back into work or all that kind of thing. That sounds super cool. I want to check that one out. Sweet. Sweet. I have two picks. The first one, I can't actually endorse it, but I saw it pop up yesterday and thought it was super cool. And I'm going to check it out. It's a new book from John Arendelle, The Power of Go Tools. The byline is, why shouldn't it be as easy to write systems programs in Go as it is in the shell? And I was like, wow, that's kind of cool. So I'm going to check that out. And once I do, I'll Probably if things go well, it will be a pick in subsequent weeks for me. And the other pick is uh, from the hashtag shameless self-promotion category. I am still building trustified.io because the resume is dead. So head over and check that out. I've got some updates that will be coming out this week on that. Basically, the short summary is this is a trusted network to allow you to prove this technical skills that you have for the job interview process, or if you are recruiting, it's a way to find people who have proven skills and shuttle us out of the medieval antiquated whiteboard interview hell that we currently know and live in. So those are my picks. And that's our episode. Cool. Awesome. You know, Stemaway is doing something very similar. Who? We'll talk to them. Stemaway, they're like a, an educational organization. I don't know if they ever quite used the line. I can introduce you if you want. I don't know if they ever quite used the line resume is dead, but that kind of, they definitely give that kind of vibe though, because they have these like sort of like real time project based, you know, as the students do things, they make the students write up documentation basically in like a blog post or like a MK docs, Hugo kind of, kind of style and then, and then put it there. And then that's like supposed to be the resume. Gotcha. Right on. Check that out. Cool. Well, I will see y'all next week. Next week. Bye everybody. 
Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.